Shalom, shalom, friends. Welcome to Section 35 in Pearls of Kindness. Living with awe, Yira, Yira, living with awe. I'm very excited about this topic with you all. Um, very rich and very uh, uplifting. And I would love to hear from you on this poll question. I experience awe most walking in nature, looking up at the sky at night, in religious or spiritual practices, or I don't really experience awe. Okay, let's see what we have. Walking in nature, 40%. 20% looking up at the sky at night. 40% in religious or spiritual practices. Nobody says I don't experience awe. Okay, I want to invite everyone to type in the chat for a moment. Um, if there's a type of experience you have had or have consistently um, that is kind of awe-inspiring. Take just a moment if you're comfortable and write something in the chat. Um, that is something that has in the past or consistently gives you a sense of, wow, wow. Okay, Ethan's got live music. Love it, yes. Eddie's got seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time, amazing. Alex says, her kids, yes, that resonates for me. Lauren, autumn leaves, seeing the Grand Canyon, the first time I saw the Kotel in 1968. I wish I saw the Kotel in 1968. Oh my gosh, a year after a Kotel Biyadenu. Um, Cheryl, the birth of my grandchildren. Interesting that the birth of grandchildren was more awe-inspiring than the birth of a child. I would have thought the opposite, but I don't know anything about that. Um, I'm sure they're both amazing, but at least one you didn't have to physically experience. <laughs> um, Eric, seeing my daughter and seeing the Kotel for the first time. Beautiful. Sarah, when I connect deeply with another. Yes, love that. Oh my gosh, like deep human connection. Gary, birth of my granddaughter. Amazing. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So let's hold on to all those as we <clears throat> move forward here together. So the Talmud teaches that everything is in the hands of heaven, except for the fear of heaven. The Hebrew term used for fear in this dictum is yira, which can actually be translated as both fear and awe. An alternative reading then is everything in, is in the hands of heaven, except for the awe of heaven. All of this is to say that yira in both senses is completely within our control. Right? So this is a heavily deterministic teaching of the Talmud. It says freedom is limited, right? God controls most things like who is born and who dies 
and things like that. But there's a few limited things, and all of those are in the category of yira, those that fall into the choice, the choices in our lives that are made from that place of, of awe or fear. So friends, let's explore this a little further. There's two primary forms of yira in, in Judaism. The first is that we should fear God, fear the heavens, a notion not so attractive to modern people. Modern people typically describe this approach as being unmeaningful or outdated, right? The second form of yira is about living with awe, being blown away by the awesomeness of our outer world, by our inner world, and by God's involvement in the world. So we'll begin with Yirat Shemayim in the classical sense. We are to fear God because God is our creator and our judge. The story is told, a disciple of the Kutzker Rebbe complained to his master that he was unable to worship God without becoming aware of his pride. Is there a way of praying that prevents the self from intruding, he asked? Have you ever met a wolf while walking alone in the forest, returned the Kutzker? I have answered. What was on your mind at that moment that you saw the wolf in nature? Fear, nothing but fear, the need to escape. You see, replied the Kutzker, at that moment you were afraid without being self-conscious or aware of your fear. It is in this way that we must worship God as well. And so this notion here of being so immersed in a spiritual emotion that we're not even aware that we're immersed in it. We're so immersed in it, right? You're not aware that you're afraid of the wolf. You're just immersed in fear. So too, like, what does that kind of spiritual experience look like for modern people who are so distracted, are so self-aware in so many senses? Here, the Kutzka Rebbe is teaching, you can't fully love someone if you're always aware of the love and never overwhelmed by the love. So too, one can't fear the greatness of God if one is never overwhelmed by it. We might ask ourselves what experiences we cultivate us, cultivate that humble us so greatly that even allow the possibility of feeling this. For some, perhaps it's a really frightening diagnosis from a doctor. For others, it might be a financial crisis. It's often moments such as these that make us feel so vulnerable and thus in fear of God, so to speak than we could ever imagine. We recite in the second bracha before the Shema of Shacharit, and enliven our eyes in your Torah and cause our hearts to hold fast to your commandments. Make us single-hearted to love and fear your name. Further, the Torah states in Deuteronomy and Devarim 10, 12, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God demand of you? Only this to fear the Lord your God, to walk in God's paths, to love God, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So for the rabbis, this idea is expanded from fear of God and God's name to also fearing sin. One Mishnah teaches, and right, that was Yirat Shemayim, the fear of heavens, to now Yirat Chet. There were two chambers in the temple one, the chamber of secret gifts, and the other, the chamber of vessels. The chamber of secret gifts, Yirei hates sin-fearing persons, used to put their gifts there in secret, and the poor who were descended of the virtuous were secretly supported from them. The chamber of vessels, whoever offered a vessel as a gift would throw it in, and once in 30 days the treasurers opened it. Any vessel they found in it that was of use for the repair of the temple they left there. 
the others were sold and their price went to the chamber of the repair of the temple. So we see here this category of yirei hate, those who fear sin, right? And let's think about that. There's some people who like are worried about climate change and are worried about how they recycle and how they use their electricity. There's other people who say, eat, drink, and be merry. It's not my responsibility, right? There's some people who are worried about their business ethics, only lest they be caught and, and be fired or prosecuted. There's other people who are worried about their business ethics because they feel God is watching, right? Yurei hate is a category that says, I'm afraid of doing wrong in my life, not lest I be caught, but because I have some sense that um, I live by a certain level of a moral, moral accountability. Another Mishnah teaches, when Rebbe Meir died, the composers of fables ceased. When Ben Azai died, the diligent students of Torah ceased. When Ben Zoma died, the expounders of Torah ceased. When Rabbi Yehoshua died, goodness ceased from the world. <laughs> when Rabbi Kiva died, the glory of the Torah ceased. But when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi died, humility and fear of sin ceased, right? It doesn't mean, of course, that those traits actually fully ceased from the world, but that they, li they lived as a paragon. They lived as a paragon for those values and nobody could reach that level, uh, uh, reach that level again. Right, Rav Yehuda Hanasi, of course, is the uh, the one who compiles the Mishnah, um, and so he's a, one of the most significant players in all of Jewish history for somebody who kept all of the the Mishnaic teachings alive, and um, and he was known for his uh, his fear of sin, which is actually a good category for someone whose job is to compile with intel intellectual integrity the full compilation of diverse teachings of a few hundred years. Right, because what some people might do is change history in their ideology. Say, "Oh, I like the liberal approach. I like the conservative approach. Or I hated that guy. That guy was that guy. Uh, you know, I, I don't want his name in there." But Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, he puts everybody's voice in there. He puts all the various teachings in there and the disagreements in there. And so that's the kind of person you want to be hold fear of sin. Um, right? You can almost uh, you can imagine so many uh, um, uh, edges that could be cut in someone who has such a huge responsibility. And perhaps most famously in the Mishnah we learn, Rav Hanina Bendosa said, anyone whose fear of sin precedes their wisdom, their wisdom is enduring. But anyone whose wisdom precedes their fear of sin, their wisdom is not enduring. Friends, I think this is such a beautiful Pirkei vote because there are so many brilliant intellectuals who have no fear of sin, right? And those intellectuals um, are able to outsmart a whole lot of people. Think about um, financial crooks. Think about um, think about doctors who can uh, outsmart their patients. Think about uh, uh, rabbis who can hide who can hide um, you know true Torah, right? There are people who just know a whole lot more than the people they're guiding. And without the integrity of fear of sin, although that's a very unmodern phrase, and so I'm aware it may be alienating to some modern people don't love to talk about sin, right? But this notion of, let's call it integrity, this notion of moral accountability, right? That if that doesn't precede wisdom, that wisdom is very dangerous, right? Being wise without, without moral accountability is very, is very dangerous. And so furthermore, the Torah teaches that we should fear God paradoxically in order that we not be afraid of what lies before us. Moshe answers the people, be not afraid. 
For God has come only in order to test you, and in order that the fear of God may be upon your faces, so that you don't sin, right? Once you fear God, you need not be afraid, right? If you don't hold kind of a, a fear of the heavens, right? If you don't hear thunder and lightning and tremble, if you don't look up at a starry night and wonder if I'm living my, my life morally, right? Then we ought to be afraid, right? But if we do feel that, Moshe tells them, right? If we do live our lives with a little bit of tremble, am I doing enough? Am I giving enough tzedakah? Am I volunteering enough? Am I holding myself morally accountable? If we do do that, then we can paradoxically be less afraid, actually, in a sense, right? The Midrash, in, right? The one who should be full of fear is one who isn't living with constant daily checks of moral accountability. The Midrash interprets, and so this yira, and so the, this yira be upon your faces, Fear here is shamefacedness, boshet. Shamefacedness is a good sign in a person so that you do not sin. We are hereby apprised that shamefacedness leads to fear of sin, right? We think of shame as a negative trait in many ways, but in this sense, a positive trait of a, shame, a, a boshet, right? Busha, a type of shame that one is embarrassed by mistakes they've made right? That's a healthy form of shame. Like, oh my gosh, like I, that person was right in front of me asking for my help and I wasn't there. Like, oh my gosh, I said such a rude thing to that person today, you know, right? A sense of, of embarrassment uh, by our missed moral opportunities and, um, and that type of, of kind of uh, fear of sin. Uh, perhaps, right? And, 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 and think about the things that are lasting, right? It's like almost everything a parent does with a child is lasting, right? The child remembers or impacts their soul, right? And kind of the level of, um, right, that with increased responsibility comes increased impact. And with that increased Im impact, kind of an increase of level of, and so we don't talk about politicians this way. We, we, we talk about politicians of whose policy do I agree with, right? Oh, that one stands for the ideology I agree with, so I vote for them, right? But imagine a world where we said, is this a person where in some sense we can assess that they actually have some moral compass, right? Regardless of whether their policies align with mine, right? Imagine if that was the first thing we asked when we were dating somebody, not like, am I totally physically attracted to this person, like over, overwhelmingly attracted, or is this person like to hike the way I like to hike, right? Um, or, you know, is this person within my five-year age, age, uh, age? Um, but does this person have a deep moral compass of like thinking, you know, throughout, the, imagine if that was our primary, you know, thing that we did in hiring a person on, on staff, or if we thought about the kind of friends we wanted to maintain, right? Not to dismiss the other important factors, right? But um, anyways, so perhaps the key to understanding this Mishnah here could be found over here in another Mishnah. It is stated, and it shall be when you draw near to the battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. The priest identified in this verse is the priest anointed for war, right? This is the war priest, the priest who is inaugurated specifically to serve in this function. The Torah dictates the priest's address, and he shall say to them, Here, Israel, you draw near today to battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint, fear not, nor be alarmed and do not be terrified of them. And the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, what 
person is there that is fearful and faint-hearted. Let them go and return to their home. Rabbi Akiva says, fearful and faint-hearted is to be understood as it indicates that the person is unable to stand in the battle ranks and to see a drawn sword because it will terrify them. Rabbi Yossi Hagalili says, that is fearful and faint-hearted is one who is afraid because of the sins they have. Oh, so very interesting. So we already said, don't be afraid. Oh, no, excuse me. We said fear is good, right? A religious person, a spiritual person should live with a sense of, of trembling, right? Not overwhelming. Not, we're not completing this with anxiety. We already did a session on how anxiety is inhibitory, right? And in and, and many ways toxic. And yet um, we said there is a type of fear which is healthy religiously and spiritually. And, um, and, and um, yet we see over here the opposite. Uh, that fear is the opposite of what you want. If you need to go to battle in the world, so to speak, I know that sounds a little militaristic, but take it, take out the militaristic context. In whatever sense we are fighting for what we believe in the world, whether we're fighting for our health or fighting for our marriage or fighting for um, justice or fighting for Torah, like whatever we're fighting for, uh, fighting for dignity, right? That That in that battle, we need to have a certain type of fear or that we cannot have a fear. And what is the fear of, of, that, that, uh, in, that the mission implies we shouldn't have is afraid that, that, the, that the opposition is going to win, right? Don't, don't think they're going to win. You need to have a faith that you can handle this, right? But then Rabbi Yosef Glili shifts it. He says, no, this is not a confidence of victory. This is actually don't be afraid of your sins, right? Which is the opposite of what we said. Um, why? Because um, you, are, you are working, uh, you're doing that spiritual work to ensure that you're, you have an alignment, a moral alignment of what you believe is the good with how you live on a daily basis. So this notion of Yira as fear is carried over to one's teacher as well, not just for Yirat Shemayim, we talked about fear of heavens, Yirat Chet, a fear of doing wrong. And now we're going to talk about um, fear of teacher. Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua said, let the honor of your student be as dear to you as your own and the honor of your colleague as the fear of your teacher, and the fear of your teacher as the fear of heaven. So that's very interesting um, around this. Now, I don't know that formalities are what they're talking about. That said, I am, in a, I am a fan of titles. When you walk into Dr. Gary Friedlander's office, don't call him Gary. Call him Dr. Friedlander. If you're his friend and you have coffee with Dr. Friedlander, call him Gary. But if you're in the doctor's office, right, if you're meeting with Rabbi Barry Dove Lerner to plan your wedding, don't call him Barry. If you're Barry's friend and you're having coffee, call him Barry. But if, you have, if you're getting married, call him Rabbi Lerner. Right? No, no, no. You... Call him Dove, but not, or Rabbi Dove, okay. but not okay. Barry. Okay, don't call him Barry at all. <laughs> call him, don't even call him Barry at all. Okay, good. Uh, you know, you know, if you are if you are seven years old and 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 you're volunteering with Eddie Chavez Calderon, don't call him Eddie. Call him Mr. Eddie, right? And so I know some people think in this era, and there's schools that have moved away from titles, right? And that everybody should call their teachers by their first names, and rabbi shouldn't be called rabbi, and doctor shouldn't be called doctor, and you know, and kids shouldn't call Mr. and Mrs. or whatever the case is, and. And, um, and I, I understand that formalities are not the, uh, the, the end point of, of this kind of category. 
but it is one sign of kind of like, in this moment, I'm in a relationship with you where you're my teacher, right? And I want to relate to you not as my friend at this moment, but as my teacher. I want to relate to you as my doctor at this moment. I want to relate to you as my lawyer, as my police officer who's protecting me. I want to relate to you as my parent. I don't call my parents by their first name, right? And so there is something of like having a fear. Again, fear is, is, is such a complicated word, I know, and we're going to continue to unpack that. But some sense of, dis, of, of awe for the person that we're engaging with that enables us to learn from them more deeply, respect them more greatly. So here we see a crucial shift in our understanding of Yira from one of fear of punishment to one of honor and reverence, right? You don't fear your teacher, your teacher's gonna slap you, right? I know teachers used to do that, but but in these days, like your teacher's not gonna give you a patch, right? Get, take a ruler and hit your hands, right? Um, um, right? So this is not a fear of punishment. Yeah, I guess some teachers are gonna send you to detention or expel you, but that's not what the rabbis are talking about here. They're talking about a fear that is about honor or reverence, right? If, if one doesn't respect their teacher, you shouldn't, go to that um, go to that synagogue or go to that uh, program, right? You want to learn from someone that you feel like to some degree um, tries to live by what they what they are teaching. One might think of this kind of yira as being about quieting one's own moral reasoning and moral intuition and just submitting to others. But we need to be clear, none of this respect is about submitting to the doctor or to the lawyer, or to the police officer, or to the rabbi, or, who, or to one's parents, right? We're not talking about submitting and quieting one's moral intuition. Rather, we must consider this profound teaching from Rav Kook on natural morality. A person's fear of God should not displace natural morality, since then it ceases to be a pure fear of God. The sign of pure Yirat Shemayim is when it aids natural morality, which arises from the human being's upright nature to attain an even higher level, higher than it could attain alone. However, if fear of God is depicted as hindering the person's effectiveness and capacity to perform beneficial actions for the individual and the community, and as causing fewer activities to be undertaken, then that fear of God is invalid. Whoa, Rav Cook has a huge insight here. He says, oh, don't think you're so pious. You're gonna follow the letter of the law and quiet your moral intuition. Oh, I'm, I fear God. I'm just going to do what I've been told. The Torah says do X. I'm just going to do that. I don't need to think. I don't need to question. Actually, Rav Cook says that's kind of a false Yerat Shemayim, right? Questioning, challenging should be a part of Yerat Shemayim. It doesn't mean submission because your parents said do something. Respecting your parents doesn't say mean you say yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Right? It means respect is more complicated. It's not just about submission. So too, you don't just say, oh, God said it, I'm going to do it. That's what it means to honor God and fear God. Rather, you have to keep your moral intuition alive because that is also a part of fearing God. A religious fear for Rav Kook does not quiet one's moral conscience, but enlivens it. Such a sentiment expands us rather than limits us. Indeed, if one feels truly accountable for their life and responsible for their choices, and that they'd ultimately be accountable for their choices, the stakes are raised. But let's now, let's now move from yira as fear and as reverence, yira of, of judgment, towards the phenomenological yira, the experience of awe. Tehillim teaches us that yira 
is the basis of human wisdom. Reshit Chachma Yirat Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the awe of God. Reshit Chachma Yirat Hashem. Here God's name is rendered as Yud Hey and Vav Hey used when honoring the sacred, ineffable nature of God. When God is revealed before Moshe at the burning bush, the name that is given is Eheyeh, Asher Eheyeh. I will be that what I will be. That is to say that our awe of God can also be understood as our awe of the divine capacity for evolving, growing, and becoming. Through wisdom, we invite ourselves to take the slightest glimpse into the divine correlative of the human mind, the mind-like essence of the infinite creator of the universe. Through wisdom, we stand on the edges of the universe, looking for clarity into life's greatest mysteries. Right, Rabbi Wolpe said in a recent VBM program that living with awe means that you believe, that you don't believe, something like you don't believe life is a problem to be solved. You don't believe life is a puzzle that can be completed, right? But rather a mystery, right? If you take one approach, you say, oh, we're advancing in reason. We are understanding everything in science and history. We have moral progress. We can figure it out, right? Life is understandable. But actually to live with Yira says, actually, there's a level of mystery. There's a level of curiosity. There's a level of uncertainty that humans cannot and never will understand. And through this wisdom, we are able to taste awe at the same time realizing that the human mind is a speck compared to the wisdom center of the infinite. Anticipating that one might choose to embrace this type of radical spiritual consciousness, Rav Cook explains in more detail the process of what might happen. Says here in Psalms, in the flow of the Holy Spirit, one feels the divine life force coursing the pathways of existence through all desires all worlds, all thoughts, all nations, all creatures, right? I don't, I don't thank our, our great uh, team member, Alex Kramer, enough for all she does, and especially for putting together these amazing slideshows. Um, but she finds this amazing art, and as you know, this, this uh, remarkable revelation that, that, that appeared just recently, which um, truly, I mean, opened the minds and hearts and souls of all humanity around the world in seeing these, this type of uh, uh, imagery from billions of years ago. Now, of course, we cannot talk about awe without talking about who? Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose 50th yard site we just commemorated. Uh, hard to believe, oh my goodness, um, that it is his 50th yard site. It doesn't feel that long ago, but uh, 1973. Um, Anyways, Heschel writes over here in his work, Man is Not Alone. Among the many things that religious tradition holds in, a, in store for us is a legacy of wonder. Wonder goes beyond knowledge. Wonder is a state of mind in which we do not look at reality through the perspective of our memorized knowledge, in which nothing is taken for granted. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder almost necessarily declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of, of our state of mind. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. Wonder is the root of all knowledge. There is no answer in the world to radical amazement, right? So there's a mistake today, I think, that people say, are you a person of faith? I'm not sure I am. I'm not sure I believe X, Y, and Z, right? But let's flip that. 
according to Heschel, a person of faith is not a person who believes X, Y, Z, but a person who is full of wonder for X, Y, and Z, right? The question is not, do you believe in God, but are you full of wonder at the possibility of the infinite, right? Of, of an all-compassionate being. Question is not if you believe in a next world of olam haba, of heaven, and have a perfect picture of what it looks like, but are, are you full of wonder about what can happen after our physical body dies, right? It's not whether you know for certain you have a soul inside of you and are, and, and, and through meditation are in touch with it every day, but are, are you full of wonder at the depths of the human being and what what is what, how deep the human capacity actually trans, can transcend? The Jerusalem Talmud teaches Rav Yossi Bar Khanina would pray with the rising and setting of the sun so that the awe of heaven would be upon him all day. So friends, to conclude here, when one is filled with awe for the greatness of our universe, it can truly be transformative for how we live each day. Indeed, if we are committed to a life of chesed, of kindness, we might ask ourselves how our sense of yira, our, our awe of God, our awe of the world, our awe of humanity can contribute to that capacity for chesed. How expanding our and deepening our inner world can expand our ability to see and serve others? How can a sense of radical amazement contribute to our humility, our gratitude, and our need to give back? Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you. Everyone is so full of awe that there's nothing left to say. Uh, Steve Chauvin, let's hear from Steve Chauvin. Paul <laughs> sucks. Um, Am I, I, I don't, I don't understand all, is it part of some hierarchy of things that are better or worse than something else in, in terms of our relationship with God? Um, I believe in God only because I can't figure out how else everything started, but I don't have the sense of religious all that others might have and i i don't say that with any conceit or or anything it's it, it, it's just a thing um but i have all for people and i do believe that there is so much in every person that i meet and and i hope that i can help them bring it out and i hope they can help me understand uh, the extent of their wonderfulness and eternity and the end. Beautiful, Steve. Thank you so much for that. What seems clear to me, and nothing is clear to me in Torah, but what seems clear to me from the little bit of Torah I've learned, that if we could, if God could choose between us having awe of God in a religious sense or awe of human beings, um, although both are certainly valuable, that the latter, as you described it, would most certainly be uh, the the religious preference that um, something would be wrong in the world if someone looks up at the starry night and looks out at the ocean and is blown away by God and yet walks casually by human beings without seeing their dignity. Whereas one who has the opposite, who appreciate, appreciates the ocean and the stars, but is not kind of blown away by God's presence. But when they see a human being, um, they are... Um, they are amazed by them. And I'm not going to embarrass you, Steve, but you live that. <laughs> you live that when you see human beings. 
boy, do you see them. Boy, do you see them. And you're a teacher to me in how you see them consistently. And I won't give examples, but um, thank you for being our teacher in that. And, um, and I hope that we now introduce, we can now live by a new category because we talked about Yirat Shemayim, Yirat Chait, uh, fear of teacher, a whole bunch of categories of the like, radical amazement. But let's add Yirat Adam. Now, normally Yirat Adam is used in a negative sense, right? Martin Luther King said in his speech before the night he died, he was killed, he was murdered. He said, I fear no man anymore, right? Um, and the Torah says the same. We should fear no person, right? We should live by our integrity and not live based on social acceptance. We shouldn't fear people. But a different type of Yirat Adam is what Steve is introducing to us. A type of awe of people that we see the awesomeness of, of the other. So thank you, Steve, so much for that. Lauren and then Sarah. I, I think adding on to what Steve said is also um, an awe of what, of human endeavor, human resilience. But, you know, just think, I mean, you're too young. But I remember the first moonwalk, you know, we, we were like all watching it on TV. I think the whole world was watching. Mm -hmm. And what a sense of awe that like human beings are actually able to get up to the moon and walk on it. And even when I think of all the medical developments that have, have happened over the years, <clears throat> I mean, I'm even still in awe of my need for it replacement to think that they can like take out the damaged knee and put it in a mechanical knee and it works it's it's incredible so i think that's the daily awe can i tell you a little bit about the cartel that time i really want to share it if it's okay so i went to israel for the first time in 1968 it was before i went to university and i was staying in um in an old pun in Netanya. And I hitchhiked, which gives me the chills now, but I hitchhiked with a few friends from Netanya to Yerushalayim. And late at night, we went to the Kotel. And this is right after the war. So there's no plaza, there's no lighting. You have to walk over rubble and there, and there's no mechitza. And there under the moonlight were just a few Hasidic men davening at the Kotel. That was it. And I just, cried and I thought also like what what an honor for all my generations of East European ancestors to prayed to seeing the Kotel and even growing up as a young girl that we're never going to be able to see it because it's in Jordanian hands. Anyways that was I still get goosebumps thinking about it and that was the most awe-inspiring experience I ever had. I wish the Kotel still looked like that, to be honest. Thank you, Lauren, for that. Um, that, that. That's really powerful, those two stories you shared. And, you know, it's interesting. I've led so many trips to Israel, whether it's been countless birthright trips I've led or honeymoon Israel or others. And there's always this moment of people come up to me, up to me after the Kotel of like, oh my gosh, I was totally blown away. And then the other half, it comes over. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I thought I was supposed to feel something. Was I supposed to feel something? Like, I don't know if I was blown away, you know? And there's almost like, there's this expectation that everyone is gonna have be amazed by the same things. And someone like you who lived that and saw that and, um, and were blown away by it. And like young people today, 
um, don't understand walking on the moon as being amazing. Like, what do you mean? Like the moon, it's like, I, I, you know, and so like based on our own lives and our own experiences, the things that amaze us are so different, right? And that is so important to think about that we should be more curious and less judgmental of ourselves. How come I'm not amazed by that? Because sometimes people say, oh, I saw the most amazing movie or it's the most amazing book or look at this sunset. I say, oh, I, I feel bad. I'm not amazed, you know, like, you know, <laughs> and people are amazed by such different things. I mean, that, that, that it's not like there's one human capacity for amazement and everyone has it the same. Like we're such unique human beings blown away by different things. And so, um, yes, I share with you, like, I think that even though I'm so troubled by Israeli policies these days, um, I have such a deep connection because of my own sense of awe of things that I experienced, which is just particular to me. It's not like a, a fact I can prove to someone. I just had awe-inspiring experiences connected to Israel that are so deep in me, like similar to like what I had with my child or what I had in a, you know, in a, in a class or in this, in a movie I saw recently. And so that's worth us reflecting on. Like, what am I amazed by and why? Where does that come from in me that I'm amazed by this and not amazed by that? Why do I like this kind of movie and not that? Why do I like to hike on this mountain or in this or 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 or, or in this forest? Why do I read this book? And what amazes me? And now I want to say something about your other point, um, because I think that we should not only think about what amazes us and build off that, but think about our barriers to amazement. Now, I don't want to sound like a fogey who hates social media. You know, I know I'm already <laughs> relatively old in the social media world. I'm not in the war against social media, right? But I do, I, I've got many concerns about social media, many, many concerns. And let me share just one of 10 of them. One of my 10 concerns is I think it deadens our capacity for awe. I know people who literally like every hour, they just flip through their TikTok for like a minute. Like, oh. Oh, there's the coolest, there's the coolest dunk that ever happened. Oh, there's some like half naked person up. Oh, there's like somebody like doing this, um, like outrageous thing. And like, you just get used to like outrageous things, like being present in a way that the amazing things that happen right in front of our eyes are no longer noticeable because like, we're just kind of immersed in like making the outrageous normal. Let me give another analogy, which also, I don't want to sound overly pious by stating this, but like, uh, think about like the dangers of pornography. I think what it also, do, pornography does, it takes away the awe of one's partner, right? If one has a partner, like the awe of encountering them, right? In a way that por pornography deadens the whole sexual experience of like what it means to encounter someone, to see the nakedness of a loved one in a way that like, in some ways being immersed in social media does of like, just like, like things, like all this sensory overload kind of being packed into one's brain all the time in a way where one can no longer see, see a, a sunrise. One can't hear crying and laughter. One can't see like how well that nine-year-old played basketball because all they saw was that most amazing play that ever happened. You know what I mean? And it's so too, like that first moonwalk was so amazing because we never saw it. And I think we have to think, we don't have to be like Haredim, like we don't have to make the ultra-Orthodox who want to turn off the TV, turn off social media. Like we don't have to turn off the world, but I think we should think about what we put in our into our heads and how that affects our capacity for awe and how it doesn't. Okay, I said too much. Sarah, thank you, Lauren. Um, yeah, boy, 
you've opened a whole can of worms here. Um, I'm going to step back from pornography. Thank you. Because um, as, as we've been speaking, some of it seems to me to boil down to humility and where we sit in terms of humility, our openness to curiosity and being odd that when we are no longer humble before our Lord or in any other respect, we, we are closed, we are shut off, we, are, we shut off our hearts and our heads and our eyes and our ears. And I think that that is a major barrier perhaps to awe. That's just my humble opinion. Um, as I was thinking about what, what mm -hmm. awe is for me, and I had a really hard time with the, uh, with the uh, question at the beginning because it's like, no, it's, it's so much of this that when I, when the barrier between me and every other particle in this universe disappears and I am truly at one with the infinite, whatever name we put on it, and I posed my question, in the chat, um, then not only am I open to the incredible awe of that oneness, but to all kinds of awe in the universe. So I think I'm going to finish there. Mm. Wow. Yeah, thank you for sharing that spiritual thought around, because um, one might ask oneself as as Sarah offered us, like, like, what is the spiritual journey towards cultivating this? And there are so many, but one of the gifts Sarah gave us is um, around the capacity for humility in an experience um, where the boundaries around us fall down, not only just between self and other, as Steve offered us, um, and between self and universe, as Lauren offered us, but also between just, not just the cosmos, but the, on the micro level, on, on, the, um, on, the, um, uh, on the molecular level of like what, where does the self begin and end? And, you know, I mean, we're breathing air and where, where is that air within me and outside of me? And where is me encountering the world around me? And where is that merging space? And how is there kind of a oneness to all of that? And I think that awe um, is so remarkable and it's worth us all experimenting with. Thank you so much, wow. Hi Rabbi, um, I'm, I'm wondering when, when do we get an intermingle or intermix of moments of awe with miracles? Um, and how do we like define them? You know, like, can we sometimes see like it's actually a moment of awe or it's actually a miracle? I don't know, I'm kind of pondering with that right now. Okay, love it, I love it. Um, so it's a great question. It's a great thought. It's a great thought. But why, why is this so great? Because the, um, according to the rationalist approach, there is nature and then there's this very limited realm of the miraculous, right? But according to the Kabbalistic approach, everything is miraculous, right? So let's give an example. The rationalist says, my heart beat, my heart is beating right now. That's not miraculous, that's nature. 
That's how animals work, right? My heart's beating. I had a heart attack. And if I hadn't I gotten to the hospital 30 seconds sooner, I would have died. Like there was a miraculous intervention that I made it just in time. That's miraculous, right? According, so that that's the rationalist. It's mostly nature, mostly natural. It all makes sense. And then there's these very rare moments of, of, of miracles. The Kabbalist says every single moment is a miracle, right? Every single heartbeat is itself miraculous. It's not nature, right? Now, what is the difference between nature and, and the supernatural? It's actually interesting because we, in, in Judaism, we talk about the number seven as being the natural and eight as being supernatural, right? That's why the bris is on day eight. That's why Shabbat is seven because it's the natural cycle, right? Um, that's why I fill in the blank. We can give like 10 of these examples around, around seven and eight. Um, um, and, um, and so um, what makes seven natural for the rabbis? It's very strange because there's actually nothing natural about seven, right? The, like the month calendar is lunar. The month calendar is natural. It's based on the lunar uh, cycle. The solar calendar is also natural. It's based on the sun, right? But the seven-day week is not lunar or solar. It's completely a construction of, of the Bible, right? And yet, even though it's a spiritual construct, this seven-day week, not based on the moon or the sun, we call, the rabbis call it natural. Eight is the supernatural, um, and seven is the natural. Actually, interesting. I mean, this is kind of what makes sense to a lot of folks. But there, there is in the conversation of Nida, kind of the menstruation cycle, kind of like a seven natural day. That's kind of another, or think about the planets, right? Um, and so, um, and so, the, and yet they viewed kind of this construction of the seven as being the natural realm. And so what is, and I, and I want to throw Eddie's great question back to everyone here as well. Like, how do you think about awe for the normal? versus awe for the abnormal, right? How are we amazed by what is common by, as opposed to amazed by what's uncommon? Some people find amazement in that which is common. Oh my gosh, I know the sun is coming up today, but it's, I'm still amazed by it. Oh my gosh, I know my heartbeat was, has always been here, but just checking my pulse is just like, I'm like spiritually blown away, right? I, just hugging you. I know, I know I hug you every day, but just hugging you I'm just amazed by this, this gift of like, of touch, right? And other people like, nah, nah, that stuff's just normal life. Like that doesn't amaze me. I'm amazed by like this earth shattering moment, right? So this rare thing that, it, and people become junkies for that. They become junkies for that. They, 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 they need a great ski jump, right? Only in that like amazing mountain do they really have awe. Only like when they like, hit this great high in their exercise or go to the most amazing movie or like only Kol Nidre. I don't want to go to Shabbat on every week, but Kol Nidre, right? So it's like, and, and there's no judgment. And, and it's worth asking us, like, are you a person who's amazed by the normal or are you a person who's, who's amazed by the miraculous? And, um, and, 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 and that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of what we're, what, what, what we're chasing. You know, what, what are we chasing? Anyone add to that at all? Oh, no, thank you. No, that's, that's, thank, that's, it's, it's such a great contribution. Thank you so much. Let's see. Um, who have we not heard from here? Gary or Alex or Ethan or Eric or Juan or Rabbi Lerner? Let's see if any of them want to jump in first. Hi, Rabbi. Um, 
Real quick, I, I think it's an important conversation that you're starting here about what is our day-to-day relationship with awe. And I want to circle back to one of the points of conversation that you touched on earlier with sort of the oversaturation potentially of awe-inspiring moments with social media and the ways in which we engage with the world around us. I also want to potentially throw out there that um, an argument that maybe most people don't seek out moments of awe enough in their life, that it is a deeply emotional process to be awe-inspired, to be overcome with awe, that too often, for whatever reason, um, individuals may not feel comfortable, they may not make the time, they may not have the emotional space to truly be overcome with awe. There's a a beautiful quote from a man named Jimmy V, who uh, was a famous basketball coach that passed away from cancer. And he said something to the effect of every day, you should be moved to cry, you should be moved to laugh, and you should be moved to learn something. Um, And I think that all too often, we maybe move through life maybe because of the oversaturation of the types of moments that we're able to see, but that we don't fully allow ourselves to be overcome with that emotion that it requires to take us to that place of awe. Um, And I think that, you know, when you were speaking earlier about are are we, is awe simply um, being overcome by the normal? I would push back and say that, that awe isn't necessarily being overcome by the normal, but it's taking normal moments and seeing the miraculousness inside of those, uh, you know, normal moments and being grateful, honored, and, and awe-inspired by the, the presence of them in our lives. Love it. Love it. Awesome contribution. Thank you so much for that. I love that. And what a great way to live. And I love that Jimmy V piece too. Um, you know, since you and I both worked in the Hillel world, we're both familiar with, with the thing that we, uh, or this idea that uh, is often taught to students in the hell world of don't be interesting, be interested, right? That many students have anxiety, many humans have anxiety around human encounters, socialization. And one of those anxieties are, is am I gonna be interesting enough? If I go on a date or I see a friend, will I be interesting enough? But th- this teaching of don't go in being interesting, go in being interested, right? That actually rather than that, and trying to perform for the other, right? I'm going to be interested in them. And that precisely is this expanding this capacity of awe for other people. That that something very sad is also happening today of that this in in, uh, behavioral economics, the sense that humans are fundamentally predictable, right? There's a sense from marketing and from economic patterns and from, um, you know, political poll junkies that we can basically predict humans and kind of manipulate behavior based on in various ways, but that makes it really uninteresting to talk to people. If we really think people are robots, that you, you tweak, you just tweak the conditions a little, and you can predict everything they're going to do. That makes it really uninteresting to engage with people. And I think um, living with awe is breaking free from that and saying, yes, there are some dimensions of humans that are 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 uh, uh, that we can manipulate, that that we can exploit, that we can control. And yet there's, there's, there is so much more that is unpredictable. And just one thing on your other point there, which is that I think sometimes, as you said, we should try to be amazed every day. Sometimes the, the problem is we're more comfortable being numb. There's something comfortable about a numbing day, right? 
um, where we don't really want to be awake. Um, and so how do we kind of figure out how we can break through that? So yeah, awesome. Thank you. Is that hands? Is that hands? Hi, Steve. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I am sorry. I don't know how to do that little indication on the oh, that's laptop. Okay. Yes, uh, anyway, I mean, I don't mean to embarrass anybody here, and probably I will myself, but I am absolutely thrilled, maybe not all, but thrilled by everything everybody has said today. It really has filled me with a sense of tremendous uh, emotion and gratitude and, and excitement and happiness. And so I want to thank everybody. This, this is just awesome. Not meaning to make a pun, but it's, it's fabulous today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Uh, and I, 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 I totally agree. Sarah, I didn't get to read your second comment yet, but I do want to say something about your first, um, which is really great about these kind of yud and vav um, around how do we use, going back to that name conversation, um, how do we do that of kind of having that awe and reverence and also kind of, you know, accept uh, that we are partners. That's such a beautiful uh, thought that I don't want to answer, but I just want to kind of elevate and amplify, uh, you know, this notion of like this dual relationship, this covenantal partnership relationship alongside this like awe and reverence relationship. And those feel like, geez, what names do I use at different times? Thankfully, we're very lucky in our tradition to have so many different divine names. Um, and um, and which ones to pull out at, at which moments is kind of like a beautiful thing just to, to think about a little bit here. Um, Eric, did you want to jump in? No, okay. uh, I, this was just an amazing class. I kind of second the, the, the sentiments so the, this topic and the, the commentary has been wonderful so far. Um, so thank you so much for everyone who's spoken and has uh, shared their piece on the subject. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. So friends, I just want to conclude by just making a final tie into Chesed, because this is a session about kindness, about living lives and, and building a more kind world together. And yes, there's many intersections with things we talked about in other sessions, like how humility promotes kindness and humility is a part of this, right? And, um, and how, um, um, and how our, uh, and reducing anxiety is a part of this, but this unique approach of like, living with a sense of, of kind of being mind blown, being soul expanded, like of being um, just aware of how complex and mysterious and beautiful everything is, can be so hard, right? When we are in the work of looking at evil, when we are in the work of combating injustice, when we are in the world of serving those who are suffering, when we are in our own suffering, right? Those can be so hard. Like, what do you mean be amazed? Like, I'm just trying to get chemo to chemo. Like, what do you mean be amazed? I'm trying to get through this knee surgery. What do you mean be amazed? Like, my, my best friend just died, you know? And yet, like, I wonder how we can, like, hold all of that pain and yet alongside of it, hold this awesomeness right next to it, right? That, that, that one doesn't take away from the other this awesomeness of all of it, right? And in to some degree, there can even be an awesomeness. I would never prescribe this for someone else, but I think it can resonate for each of us. An awesomeness even within, even within the dark spaces, right? Even within um, our own challenges, right? When we have some despair or, or, or have, um, we're in a negative state, 
that so too there can be an awesomeness that can emerge from there. And I think that's a big part of Tehillim, of what King David is doing over there in Psalms around being in fear, but finding awesomeness and amazement from there. So friends, I wish you an awe-inspired day, not only that you create miraculous moments for others, right, that may give them awe, but that we ourselves live with it because it's a gift to us and a gift to those around us. God bless. See you at 36 next week.